On this episode of The Jukebox, we sat down with Sarah Bond, an assistant professor of classics and a digital humanist at the University of Iowa. She visited the Joukowsky Institute for our State of the Field 2018 conference on archaeology and social justice. Her research focuses on Roman law, trade, artisans, and material culture, but she is perhaps as well known for using her online presence to make archaeology and classics more accessible. Her work has been published by the New York Times and Forbes, and these days she writes three articles a month for Hyperallergic, including a piece from June of last year that spawned internet outrage from white supremacists. We chatted about classics in high school curricula and the use of social media in academia. Goldfinger He's the man, the man with the Midas touch A spider's touch Such a cold finger Beckons you to enter his web of sin people um, <laughs> remember my last name. That's normally how people um, kind of build it into their heads of who I am. They're like, oh, like James Bond. And you're like, if you just get to it first before people, then you you can own it a little bit more. Awesome. <laughs> if you just beat them to the punch. <laughs> okay, so can you trace for us your interest in the past, where it came from, um, how it developed from perhaps child as early as childhood uh, into and through college? Sure. I think, like a lot of children, I originally wanted to be a paleontologist, Mm -hmm. that I was fascinated by dinosaurs, and I loved playing in the dirt. And even though I don't love the phrase tomboy, I I did a lot of activities that were categorized as tomboyish when I was little. I wanted, like, a boy bike and wanted to play in the dirt a lot. And I read a lot about dinosaurs. And uh, so I would say from about the age of six to ten I wanted to be a paleontologist but I'm from Virginia I was born in in Roanoke Virginia but I was raised in Richmond Virginia which is kind of in the center of Virginia as opposed to Roanoke which is in the in the mountains in the Appalachian Mountains Uh, and growing up in Richmond basically your go-to field trip for your elementary school and middle school is all very much colonial archaeology centered. So I bet I've been to Williamsburg 30 times. I bet I've been to Jamestown Mm -hmm. at least 10 or 20 times. And I began to become much more interested in the history of people as opposed to dinosaurs, particularly because they're really are not dinosaur bones. There are a lot of fossils in Virginia, but not a lot of dinosaur bones. except for in museums. And so I began to become more interested in archaeology. And then when I was 14, I started to take Latin because we have Latin in the high schools, in public high schools within Virginia, which is really something that is incredibly valuable as the gateway drug to classics is to have Latin from a very early age. And uh, after the end of my first year, they had a chance to go on an EF tour, which is super cliche in some ways, but sometimes this is the first time that you will have gone out of the country is when you can be on an EF tour. So I, uh, my first job was as a lifeguard. I went and got my lifeguard certification and my parents made a deal with me that if I paid for half of the trip to Rome, that I could 
go uh, and they would pay the other half. Mm. So I lifeguarded over the summer. And then my second year of Latin, I went to Rome with my sister, Rachel. And I just, it felt like what I've never felt the rest of my life, really, uh, which is just a love at first sight when I went to the forum. Um, uh, so even though I'm married and, and love my husband very much, I, I, I've never had that bolt of lightning where I just knew that this was it. This was right. something that I felt connected to already because I was taking the language. So I already had a familiarity with it. And that's really when the paleontology fully changed into archaeology. And from there, I finished doing four years of Latin in high school and then went directly to the University of Virginia. And I had considered going to, to other schools, but Washington and Lee at that time did not have a very large archaeology lab, and it was mostly uh, historic archaeology, American archaeology. They didn't yet have a, a classical archaeology program uh, that you could really major in, only classics. And so I decided to go to the University of Virginia, which has a, a very long history of classical archaeology. And when I started taking classical archaeology courses with Malcolm Bell, who at that time was the head of the Morgantina excavations, and then John Dobbins, who is a Pompeii his, uh, historian and archaeologist, they told me, you have to also continue to take the languages, right? So I was taking Greek and Latin, and then um, I started excavating at a site called Manasukapana, which is a Monacan Indian site on Peter Jefferson's estate, the little known brother of Thomas Jefferson, which, you know, it sucks to be the brother <laughs> of a very famous man, but he had his own estate uh, on the Rivanna River outside of Charlottesville, and that is where UVA students oftentimes did their first dig. That was, you know, where they learned the basics. And then after that, I would dig at Morgantina in the summertime. So that's kind of my my start is that I was lucky enough to be in a state that valued classics, but also very much valued archaeology as a window into the history of the state and, and of the country. And because I think that the museums and the archaeological sites in Virginia, they really informed kind of how I understood archaeology and how I understood it as a valued field. Um, and I'm not sure everybody has that. So I feel pretty, pretty lucky to be a Virginian. <laughs> that was great. I, I'm interested in uh, what you said about how, which is true, that I think a lot of people in this field come to an interest in the past through language study. Uh, and then move to archaeology. And this, to me, has to be because um, Latin is, you know, commonly taught relative to archaeology in high schools. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, what more can we do to add archaeology to uh, high school curricula? I think right now we're already seeing that Part of this is revising textbooks. A lot of the traditional Latin textbooks, if you look at them from the early 20th century that were used during you know, the period of World War I and World War II into the 1950s, it's heavily literature-based. It's a lot of canonical texts pulled directly from Cicero, Virgil, uh, Horace, and uh, these canonical texts are not anything that were ordained by God. It's not something this canon was created, it was formulated by man, and it can, can be dismantled by man. Mm -hmm. So I think part of this is bringing in epigraphy in particular to a 
lot of these texts. And you can see this already happening in Wheelocks, that Wheelocks has um, a secondary volume that uh, allows you to translate graffiti. Um, I liked, it's been a while since I looked at a Wheelocks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Eke Romani, for instance, yeah. oh needs God. a heavy overhaul. Um, I think the more that we can show that... Latin is not just about late Republican and, and early Augustan literature, and that it has much more breadth in particular by giving them actual physical objects. So my students learn how to translate Greek directly from papyri that we pull off of papyri.info. I'm incredibly grateful to Duke University, really for only one thing in this world, um, which is their classics department and their papyri. Since I went to UNC Chapel Hill, I have to hate them for all other right. reasons in my life. But their papyri, um, their database of papyri, allows my students to read the actual physical object. They translate uh, transcription the night before because obviously um, it's very highly specialized to learn about handwriting mm -hmm. on papyri. But allowing students to read objects directly from the U.S. Epigraphy Project here at Brown mm -hmm. um, and actually to read the bowl itself or the cup rather than just a transcription from the right. CIL or the IG is shows the relationship between text and object. That text and object are married together um, and cannot be divorced. So that's valuable to students to show them that archaeology is melded and not to show them Latin literature in a vacuum, which is normally what textbooks do, is they pull literature from objects, from manuscripts, from palimpsests, etc., and then they transcribe it into a synthetic textbook. All textbooks are synthetic, but um, it's a synthetic study of Latin literature, and so allowing for, for more material culture within those, I think, will show show the relationship between archaeology and literature more clearly. Right. So what what do you think you might have gone into? Or what do you think you might be if you hadn't gone into archaeology? I think I probably would have gone into PR or journalism. I think that I talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> As my students know, even during discussion section, <laughs> I want to hear what they say. But I have all these things, and um, I, I value my field an incredible amount and whenever I fall in love with something uh, whether it be late antiquity or whether it be archaeology I think that I have an evangelical tendency behind me where I just perhaps it's because I'm from the south that I just want to make other people love things that I love in the same manner but I guess that that's kind of what I enjoy particularly in the past few years, is trying to take jargon-laden, kind of very dense subject matter that is published on within academia and try and um, make it into something that is more accessible for regular people. I mean, my father and my mother are incredibly smart people, but neither of them have a college degree. Uh, my, my mother is an EEG technician, and so she does. She has a medical certification, and my dad uh, was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. So when I speak to my parents and to my family, I can't use the same jargon that I can when I am with my colleagues. And why should I have to code switch all the time? Code switching is not only exhausting for many of us, uh, it's also unnecessary. 
At the University of Iowa, we have to write two abstracts for my students. They have to turn in two different abstracts for their dissertation, a public abstract and then an abstract mm. that is what we would call an academic abstract, perhaps. Um, and that, to me, is ridiculous. All abstracts, all writing should be able to be understood in an unpretentious manner. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have complex writing and that uh, journals and academic books don't have a place. They absolutely do. But I think that if we wrote with more of an eye towards allowing for a larger audience, that it would show people that we are attempting to relate our worlds to their worlds. And that effort, I think, is, is very valuable. And not everybody thinks it's worthwhile, mm -hmm. but a lot of people, more and more people, I think, are understanding that, that it's, it's something that we should invest in and that investing in it doesn't mean that you're less of a scholar for doing public humanities. So going off of that mission of making it less jargony, how have you used your online presence to accomplish that? So I should say that I think it all started with Twitter, even though the first thing I wrote for the public was a op-ed for the New York Times. I wrote about Demnatio Memoriae after Hosni Mubarak was ousted in Egypt, and they had a law that was passed that all of his images had to be torn down. And it was a rainy Saturday, and I was reading the New York Times, and uh, that already sounds super pretentious, <laughs> and uh, I was reading it, and I thought to myself, of course... This reminds me of Demnatio Memoriae, or just the desecration of memory in general, which happened throughout the Mediterranean. So I wrote an op-ed, and I reached out uh, to a professor at UNC who had already published an editorial for the New York Times, and she helped me. I had just graduated. I had just, just gotten my uh, dissertation defended on April Fool's Day. <laughs> and um, so we turned in the op-ed quickly because the news cycle moves fast. And that's one thing I learned right off the bat is that as soon as you have an idea that is relevant to classics but also relevant to what's going on now, you have to sit down and write it fast. Mm. And so I made that op-ed. But then my best friend, which I'm very lucky to have, is Christina Kilgrove, who already had a very successful blog on bioarchaeology. She's probably one of the best-known bioarchaeologists in the country. And she already had her own website, which a lot of people didn't have. This was in 2011. And she had already been using Twitter to great effect. So I started using Twitter, and I started just speaking to people and answering their questions regularly and starting to do a This Day in History. Mm -hmm. So I don't do it every day, but almost every day I wake up at around 5 a.m. in Iowa, which is 6 a.m. here, and I do a This Day in History to show people chronologically that there is a connection between us and them through the calendar, which I still really believe in the organization of time as a way of reaching out to people. Mm. Like, the Ides of March is the one that's coming up now, and I wrote a post on recreating hour by hour the Ides of March, but I've done that for, like, Pompeii. And people really love to think as they usher themselves through the, their day, what was going on right now in ancient Rome at, you know, the Forum, or in this case, the Curia Pompeia, where Julius Caesar around, we think, 1 o'clock is going to get knifed, right? <laughs> so uh, I, I started doing the This Day in History, and that was my shtick. And I felt like I had to give people a little bit of sugar 
and then feed them the academic articles I wanted them to read, oftentimes open access, but providing them bibliography and support for each of the pretty pictures I gave them. So lots of mosaics, lots of frescoes, lots of talk about polychromy, which I would develop later on. But then I would give them actual references in Project Muse or JSTOR or even better, open access articles that they could get to that really supported and buttressed the facts that I was giving them. Mm. So it was about using Twitter as a tool to create a community of scholars that I could depend on because some of my very best friends I know in real life, but also many of them I met off of Twitter and are also professors all over the country. So creating a network of people that believed in public humanities and then using that to show people that um, we can cite our work and we can ground it in good research, even if we're giving a pithy thing like on this day in history, like yesterday was the formation of the tetrarchy. And everyone is like, oh, who, what is the tetrarchy? Who is that? What is, how is that formed? People are interested, but we just have to divest ourselves of snobbery and also dedicate a little bit of time to speaking to them. Because what most people think of professors is that we are insular, you know, that we only speak to each other and that we don't have time for them. So showing them that we have at least a little bit of time to answer their questions and that we care about what they're saying um, and that we're willing to, to have a dialogue is the first step. So um, after that, I just started blogging on my own um, and blogging for other people like Dorothy King. And then uh, I was picked up by Forbes. And then Hyperallergic asked me if I wanted to write uh, an article for them. And now I've, I've written a number of, of articles pretty regularly for Hyperallergic. So... Including your infamous uh, whitewashing. Oh, yeah. And I wrote a whole book on infamia, so I guess <laughs> I know about what an infamous object is. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, I, I, I do have to say that when I wrote the polychromy article originally for Forbes, um, I had a lot of extra research because I had been writing a book on the senses, and one whole chapter was just on color. And I had written many blog posts on, like, the color of clothing, right, the, the color of uh, the way that yellow would indicate that someone was a prostitute, for instance, in ancient Greece. So I was very interested in the reception of color and the understanding of color in antiquity. And so when I started studying polychromy, I really just thought it would be a fun article to write. And then the deeper I looked at the history of polychromy and... Uh, started to read Nell Irvin Painter's The History of Whiteness, I began to understand a little bit more about the reception of color. And that became, to me, more interesting than actually the, the types of color that was applied in antiquity. Sometimes a lot of my work has focused on how reception has changed the object from its original context in antiquity. But yeah, I never thought that writing an article for essentially a very well-known blog that focuses on art and culture was going to be something that was going to be so polemical. I guess what I'm trying to tell you is that I didn't write it in order for people to write me hate mail. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was it was something that kind of got out of hand very quickly um, and was not something that I was um, poking about for. It was not something that I was trying to, to create a fire um, wherein people 
wrote articles about my hatred of white statues. Mm -hmm. But sometimes we write things and something that my students have to learn and that I had to learn is that once you create anything, whether it's a piece of art or it's a piece of writing, and you put it into the public sphere, you let it go. It's out there, and then other people will take it and transform it and mutate it. Sometimes they will be um, very true to its original character when they write about it or when they republish it, and other times people will get your argument wrong, and you can't control the narrative once you disseminate it. And that's the same for books, uh, and but we have very reputable review organizations like the BMCR and mm -hmm. um, the Journal of Roman Studies that are meant to try and understand and discern an argument um, for people who are very trained in doing so. But when you put it out into the public, there are going to be trained people who read the whole 2,000-word article. And then there'll be people that read just the headline or just 100 words. And then they write their own reactive blog post mm -hmm. or piece that completely misses the point of your argument. And mm -hmm. either you didn't make that argument well enough or they just didn't read it. Uh, or they really want you to be making an argument that they think is ridiculous, like mm -hmm. all white statues are racist, <laughs> right? Which sounds awesome if a crazy professor actually believed that right. wouldn't it be wonderful to be like this is a crazy professor who's teaching our students about white statues um but my twitter icon has been from the start <laughs> just a, a white statue with an eye mm -hmm. i love all roman and greek art um not equally but i, I appreciate all of it uh, but it's a wonderful pithy narrative to tell people to to get them to support the idea that perhaps professors are crazy PC mm -hmm. and crazy elitist, right. right? And that hurt because my whole shtick is like, don't be elitist, don't be a snob, right? Mm -hmm. So it's definitely not what I wanted, but right. that's what happened. So I had you, you let it go and... Uh, Sometimes good things happen. Many good things have happened from that article. Many positive things right. that I'm that I don't talk about as often, but I probably should. Mm -hmm. So, so you mentioned the damnation of memory in regard to Mubarak, and then um, Ides of March, which is also a George Clooney movie about political upheaval. So, what are some um, popular representations of themes of the past that you thought have been really great or really bad? I think I've spoken frequently just within about the about a month and a half ago, I wrote a review of graphic novels from the ancient world for Hyperallergic. And I talked a lot about my hatred of 300. Mm. I think that a lot of times movies are what brings students into our classes. And so while I celebrate people wanting to take Greek history classes or ancient Civ classes because they saw 300, when they come in, they oftentimes are under the impression, for instance, that Sparta had a focus on freedom, and they didn't want to be enslaved. And that's because they they were a very equal society, right? <laughs> when I tell them that there were helots, that there were slaves, essentially, not chattel slaves, but agrarian slaves, essentially, that were attached to Sparta so that they had the time to practice uh, in being soldiers and and practicing warfare um, or engaging in battle, these slaves were at home cultivating the fields, and they don't show you the helots in 300. They, they make Sparta out to be a very 
valorized society that we should all want to imitate. And I don't think of Sparta that way. Um, I think a lot of times people think that if you study ancient history, you celebrate the societies that you study. You can research a society without thinking that they're the model of the society that you wish to see. I didn't start studying Rome because I think they're good people. I think there were some good people, but most of the people we read from antiquity, Cicero, for instance, had slaves, owned slaves, and did many unethical things uh, as well. So I don't love that the 300 misrepresented Sparta. Um, And so a lot of graphic novels have come out to try and rebut 300. There's a great graphic novel called Three. There's another one called Democracy, which takes place in 490 uh, BCE. And so it's been really great to see some of this pop culture media coming out, like films and also graphic novels that now have ancient historians attached to them. There have always been occasional uses of ancient historians. Most famously, Kathy Coleman at Harvard uh, was the film consultant for Gladiator. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, I believe that she brought her name back when they didn't take her suggestions for the film. So the problem is that ancient historians and classicists can advise a film, but that doesn't mean the filmmaker actually has to take our advice. Uh, So I love that film brings students into my classroom, but sometimes there's a lot of changes that we have to make and a lot of modifications to, for instance, deconstruct the xenophobia in 300, right? Or to walk back a lot of the narratives that Oliver Stone creates for Alexander. He focuses heavily on Plutarch, for instance, but to the exclusion of lots of other sources Mm -hmm. and makes up a a lot of other things that are just uh, not in the primary sources. So it's the chance for us to read primary sources and to ask ourselves what we can do to reconstruct a narrative and what filmmakers have done to modify that narrative. But at the same time, it can give a lot of uh, people fodder for misunderstanding antiquity. A lot of people saw 300 or read the graphic novel and then uh, used Sparta as a model of conservative culture that they wanted to imitate, like Steve Bannon, Mm -hmm. for instance. Right. Have you, I'm, I'm guessing you're aware of this conversation that's been happening among classicists on Twitter about um the classist nature of requiring languages for classics degrees and um i guess requiring language knowledge for classics courses um mm-hmm. yet you know we I, I agree with you that languages are incredibly important that they add a lot to our understanding uh, you can't separate them from the material culture um so you know what uh, what's your position on this I think absolutely classics is classist. There's no getting around that. And we just have to ask ourselves whether we're indirectly creating this structure or whether we're directly uh, helping to create it. Uh, I think that denying that classics has a class problem is turning a blind eye to the fact that uh, most people, like in Iowa, don't have the opportunity to take most of these languages at an early point in their lives. That is to say, usually sometimes the end of middle school, sometimes into high school. And so uh, the people that do oftentimes in Iowa or in Illinois or in Wisconsin, oftentimes they're getting private school educations. And whether they actually 
get those private educations because they want to be elitist. That's not usually why they're going to these good schools. Their parents pay for right. them to go and get an amazing education. And that's wonderful, but it creates um, a, a class differentiation. And I come from a pretty basic middle class to lower middle class background. And if we hadn't have had Latin in the high schools, I never would have had the jump start when I got to UVA because I already had two years of Latin out of the way when I got there and then went directly into Greek. Mm -hmm. If I had had to pay for a post-bac, I wouldn't have been able to. I already took out loans and then depended on the federal government to pay for the entirety of my college, which I'm sure will piss off lots of people listening to the podcast. But um, I qualified from my parents' low income to get an education at UVA, um, but I, I benefited from the fact that we had it in the public schools. So I think first we have to acknowledge that, yes, we have classes within we, – we have a class system within classics that makes it a highly elite field because it privileges people who have had access to dead languages that most people don't have access to in middle school and high school. Um, what will we do about that? Fund more more postbacks to allow people time to learn these languages. Mm -hmm. Don't penalize them for not having German, as I was penalized. Um, when you're going into when you're going into graduate school, when you're applying to graduate schools, so I, I think that the first stop is just to say that um, there can be interregnal periods like postbacks that need to be funded more. At Iowa, we don't fund postbacks. You have to pay for that out of pocket. Um, so I think that if we say that we want to do something about it, that means giving more fellowships and um, post-graduation work that allows people to establish those languages that they may not have had the chance to get um, when they were when they were in high school. So uh, yes, I, I read the Columbia uh, student who who wrote that op-ed mm -hmm. and I have to say I wish I didn't agree with it so much. Mm -hmm. It was sad for me because I love our field and um, I run the SCS blog, I run the Twitter page and the Facebook page. I only ever want the classics field to be seen in a positive light, but that doesn't mean that we have to sweep under the rug our faults. I think professing our faults is probably the first step to trying to figure out how we address it, and that's hopefully the next step now that many of us are understanding and talking about um, how classics is structured on elitism. Uh, we've always known it, and now we're just articulating it better. But then we have to do something about it. Now it's about praxis, and praxis is hard. Um, but it doesn't mean that it isn't worthwhile, but it takes an incredible amount of dedication over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. uh, so where can our listeners find you on the Internet? Well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Sarah E. Bond. Um, I've taken a little bit of a break for for from Forbes to write for the SCS blog and to put up blog posts for the SCS blog, but still write three pieces for Hyperallergic per month. So uh, you can find me there. Uh, my email address is still missing from the website because some people want to write me with missives that I don't care to read. Mm -hmm. um, so I think Twitter um, or my blog is usually where, where you can find me. Great. Well, I think uh, your public presence um, on, the, on the internet um, advocating for classics, um, not just classics, but advocating for uh, reflections on our roles as classicists has uh, um, brought us to a, a really great point in the field. So thanks for mm -hmm. that. 
I d- just want to say that, I mean, you guys are, are part of that, that there are people like Adelon and Donna Zuckerberg and a lot of really amazing people writing public scholarship now, Curtis Dozier. Um, but we're going to leave the field one day. And uh, there are a lot of new young uh, undergraduates and graduate students um, that they're the future of classics that are going to carry it forward. And that I'm glad that the work that some of us have been doing has been inspiring. But you guys are the ones that are going to keep it alive. um, And you're the ones that are carrying it forward. So um, it's always about having multi-generational support for the classics. Um, But I'm glad that more people see this as worthy of their time. And so podcasting is a part of that. I love blogging and I haven't gotten into podcasting, but using every medium possible, I think is really cool. So um, thanks for the kudos, but I'm gonna send it right back. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, um, we'll end it there. So thanks a lot.